Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me every joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none, as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal, appeal to you for my son Anisimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated for, from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or, or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord, Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thanks. Thanks, Penelope. Oh, well, friends, it's an absolute privilege to be gathered with you this morning. Uh, thank you for giving me uh, the opportunity to deliver uh, my very first sermon. Uh, how about we pray and ask for God's help as we delve into his word? Please pray with me. Father, as we sit under your word, please humble us, open our eyes, challenge our imaginations, teach us, and rebuke us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul's letter to Philemon. It's one of the shorter books in the Bible, and it's Paul's shortest letter. It's easy to miss if you were just quickly flipping through your Bibles. But friends... This short letter is probably one of the most challenging and explosive things that Paul has written. It challenged his culture then, 
and it continues to challenge even us here in 21st century Adelaide. If you have a sermon outline in front of you, that would be handy. If you're joining us via the live stream, uh, you can find the link to the sermon outline in the video description. Now, let me reiterate. This is Paul's letter to Philemon. It's a personal letter written by the apostle to Philemon almost 2,000 years ago. And like most personal letters, Paul doesn't give an introduction and he doesn't include a cultural and social commentary with the letter. And that's an issue for us as we read this letter. It's like diving straight into episode five of a 10-part series. We'd be lost. Thankfully, we can put some of the pieces together and we can do the same with this letter. So here we go, point one in your handout, a powerful story in the making. As we read through the letter, we learn a few things about Philemon. Philemon is a Christian uh, that came to know Christ through Paul's ministry, and he is Paul's dear friend, fellow worker, and a partner in the faith. Philemon lived in Colossae, which was steeped in first century Roman culture, a culture where slave ownership was the norm and the measure for anyone who had substance. It was common to them as it is common for us to own an electrical appliance. They couldn't imagine society without it. Now I want to pause here for a second. I want to acknowledge that the topic of slavery in the Bible may be hard or completely off-putting for some of us, new or not. But can I urge us to be careful as we read passages like these in the Bible? We need to think through it and to recognize the cultural glasses that we have on. When we hear the word slave or slavery, chances are the immediate image that comes into mind is the Atlantic slave trading in the 18th and 19th century. This is not what was happening in Paul's time. While the Atlantic slavery was based on ethnicity and segregation, Roman slavery had completely different origins. Please don't mishear me. I'm not advocating for, nor do I want to make light of this issue. Far from it. But I do want us to hear what Paul is saying to his setting and context. It's stories like these where the culture gap between us and the Bible is most obvious. And to dismiss these passages at face value would be to deprive ourselves of the great challenge that Paul is posing to us. Now, back to Colossae. So owning slaves in their time was the norm, and like everybody who was anybody, Philemon owned slaves. We learned that a conflict broke out between him and one of his slaves, Onishimus. From verses 12 to 18, we can infer that Onishimus ran away from Philemon, and he might have even stolen from Philemon, probably to fund his time while he was on the run. Slaves running away from their masters was a common issue, and it carried dire consequences, like imprisonment, or worse still, death. After some time as a runaway, Onishimus met the imprisoned Paul, presumably to seek refuge and help after running out of money. 
After spending time with the apostle, Onesimus was converted to the Christian faith. Now, Paul was under legal obligation to send Onesimus back to Philemon. But I think Paul knows that there's a far better reason, far better than the legal one, to send Onesimus back to Philemon. That leads us on into point two on your handout. After writing out his greetings, Paul expresses his thankfulness to God for the things that Philemon is doing. And it looks like he's doing some amazing things. Look with me at verses four to five. I thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul prays in verse 6 that their partnership in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Suddenly, the letter shifts gears. Look with me from verse 8 onwards. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It's none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. At this point, I think if I was Philemon, I'll be thinking, okay, where is this old man going with this? I think what Paul is doing here is brilliant. You see, I think Paul is delicately and intentionally planning his words and the structure of this letter. Paul is expressing his thankfulness because he knows what he's about to ask Philemon to do is a tough ask. So in verses 4 to 9, Paul is laying a foundation before making a series of bold requests. In verse 10, Paul finally mentions Onesimus, and he appeals on his behalf. Paul quickly shifts Philemon's attention back to the bigger picture by adding that Onesimus has become a Christian and a new man. Verse 10, verses 10 to 11, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. Again, Paul is being intentional. I mean, how would you feel if you were to see your runaway slave at your front door and to read that your partner in the faith and friend is appealing for him. I don't know about you, but I will be feeling a flurry of emotions. We finally reach the heart of Paul's letter, verses 15 to 17. Paul's request. Look with me at those verses. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. What are the requests? To embrace Onesimus as a fellow brother in the Lord, and to welcome him back. Think about it. Paul is asking Philemon to welcome and reconcile with the very man that abandoned him and his household, stole from him, 
and to put his very identity and standing in society on the line, not only by refusing to seek vengeance against his slave, but also to treat him as an equal in society. Paul must be crazy. Why should Philemon even consider these, or even respond to these bold requests? Well, we find our answer in verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. What is this partnership? The word partner that's used here has its roots in the same word as fellowship. Now, what do you think of when I say the word fellowship? I don't think I'd be wrong if I guessed that you were thinking about hanging out with friends. We'd often say, we're going to fellowship over coffee. It's not wrong. But I think we use this word very loosely because to Paul, Philemon, and Onishimus, fellowship was a much stronger and more powerful word, more than just hanging out together. To them, it means sharing or a mutual participation. And when two or more people come together to share in something, they become partners. The weight of this partnership wasn't a light one either. This partnership was like a business partnership. And when someone professes their faith in Jesus, they are brought into a new family, or in Paul's words in Ephesians, a new humanity of equal partners who share in the gift of God's love and mercy. They now share a common life, they share a common goal, and a common way of life with each other and with King Jesus. And so, if Paul, Philemon, and Onishimus profess that they have faith in King Jesus, then they are brought into this new humanity and are equal partners with one another. This brings about many implications, but we're going to focus on the ones that apply to this letter. Now, one of the implications is that they are equal partners in the new humanity. God has reshaped all their identities, removing divides that were once present, opening a new way of life. Paul makes this point uh, in his letter to the Colossians, and I've included that in your handout. So, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. In the new family of new humans, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And so the ground is level before the cross. This was a key teaching of Paul's, and he writes about it to the Corinthians, the Galatians, and to the church in Ephesus. I've listed those passages out in your handouts. So, in Christ, the relationship between the three have gone beyond just have gone beyond apostle, master, and slave. They are all equal partners in need of God's forgiveness. Does this mean that there's no more order and authority? No. There's still order and authority, but it's order and authority that's shaped by the gospel. This new humanity also opens a new way of life. 
It's a life where there are no barriers to reconciliation, which then allows them to be committed to the message that they were all called to. Look with me at a passage that Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, and you can find that passage in your handout. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, recall the circumstances. Philemon's very identity and standing in society was being challenged. How can reconciliation even be conceivable, let alone possible? It's made possible because the divides between us don't exist anymore. Philemon's identity is no longer found in the things that he owns or in his title as master. It's no longer defined by, he, by the community around him, nor is it defined by his Roman background. It's solely found in Jesus, who loved him and gave himself for him. And so where reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus was unimaginable, and completely countercultural, the good news of Jesus and the new humanity that Jesus brings about has made it possible. This also means that they must be fully committed to the message of reconciliation, just as Jesus was. Look again to the passage in 2 Corinthians. Just as God reconciled himself to us in King Jesus, we too must live this message both in words and in deeds. So why should Philemon welcome and reconcile with Onesimus? He should because Onesimus is no longer just a slave to him. They are equals in this new family of humans. As verse 16 says, they are fellow brothers in the Lord. But they should also reconcile because they share a common identity and way of life with Jesus. And where barriers were once divided them, Jesus has made a way for them to freely seek reconciliation with each other. Now, Paul again is brilliant. He doesn't just write these words on paper, but he also lives them out. Did you catch those moments? Throughout the letter, Paul treats Philemon as an equal partner. Look with me, look back at verse 8 with me. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Friends, this is Paul, an apostle, evangelist, a church planter. And to add to that, in verse 19, we read that Paul has done something significant in Philemon's life, presumably bringing Philemon to the faith. Paul had every rhyme and reason to command Philemon to do what is right. Yet he chooses to appeal on the basis of love, trusting in the same love that Philemon has already shown to all of God's holy people. 
Now, Paul isn't expecting noise. He's asking Philemon to suck it up, forget what you've lost, and move on as he welcomes Onesimus back. There's real hurt and loss involved. Did you notice this? Immediately after asking Philemon to welcome Onesimus, Paul offers to pay Philemon back for whatever he has lost. On the surface, Paul is acknowledging the need for restitution. Paul has lost something and needs to be repaid. But I think there's something more powerful at hand here. Look again to verses 17 uh, and 18. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. What's Paul doing here? He himself is living like Jesus. As he asks Philemon to be like Jesus and to reconcile with Onesimus, Paul will stand between them to reconcile them to each other, just as Jesus stood in the gap to reconcile us to God. Like Jesus, Paul is willing to absorb and pay for the wrong that Onesimus has done and to put his very self on the line so that Onesimus can be reconciled to Philemon. Now, the story ends on a cliffhanger. Paul expresses his confidence that Philemon would do more than he has asked for, as if to hint at something, and he asks Philemon to prepare a room because he wants to visit when he is able to. That's it. The end. What? How exactly would Philemon respond? We don't know. And we hope that Paul's confidence wasn't misplaced. As our imaginations run wild, thinking about Philemon's response, I want to turn that question on us. How would we respond if we were in that situation? Friends, at the heart of my question is this. Are we living the story of this relationship in our day-to-day lives? Sure, our day-to-day lives look very different compared to Paul's. But the whole point is that the good news of Jesus has completely changed us, just as it did for Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. In this new humanity, we have been made equal partners, completely reshaping the way that we relate to one another and making a way for us to find reconciliation with each other, just as Christ reconciled us to God. Now, the key knight among you would have noticed that this conflict was between two Christians. What about our relationships with non-Christians? Well, that's a bigger and harder question to answer, and we simply don't have the time uh, for it today. The one comment I'll make is that at the very least, we need to get our relationships in this family right. I think the way that we relate to one another in this family should inform the way we we relate to non-Christians. So friends, what does this mean for us? What would it look like for us to be new humans here at Trinity Church Adelaide? What would it look like for us to be new humans in our wider communities, 
in our schools, in our workplace, in our families, and in our marriage? What would it look like if we lived like equal partners with each other? What if everyone here lived the message of reconciliation, to stand in the gap between those who are divided and the people whom you yourself are divided from? The world will be turned upside down, and in a good way. I don't know where you're at, but as we go into a time of prayer and song, I encourage you, think of a relationship that's tense or where there's conflict or that you just don't want to deal with. Maybe it's with Jim, seated two cubicles away from you in the office. Or maybe it's with a course mate at university or your best friend or with a family member. Or maybe it's with your spouse. What would it mean for you to see the story of the relationship that we have just heard in those relationships? Friends, I know this is hard. I myself am trying to put this into practice. In this past week alone, I struggled so much to muster the courage to even be in the same place as somebody that I've wronged. I was having inner battles with myself because so much of myself was at stake. But that shouldn't stop me from making an effort to live the message of reconciliation. And neither should it stop you. It might be hard in some other ways. Some people might think you're completely stupid for even bothering to seek reconciliation and to show grace to someone who is undeserving of it. But friends, isn't that what grace is like? Isn't that what God's love is always like? If we say that we have faith in Jesus, then this is the message that we are committed to, right? Friends, this might come at a great cost, but Jesus has already paid that great cost, and we can confidently clothe ourselves with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us courage and boldness to live as the new humans that you've called us to be, to be a people that are committed to seeking reconciliation with one another, even when it's hard, and to be a people that live as equal partners with one another, sharing in the love and grace that you've given to us through your Son. And in whose name we pray, amen.